This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. When most people envision an adrenaline shot, the first thing that most likely comes to mind is the iconic scene from 1990s cult classic Quentin Tarantino movie Pulp Fiction, where Uma Thurman's character, Mia Wallace, overdoses on heroin and must be resuscitated by a shot to the heart. Because this is Hollywood medicine, she's instantly revived. Unfortunately, in real life, a direct shot of adrenaline to the heart doesn't work like that. In fact, it may very well kill you. A fact which Kristen Gilbert knew very well. Nicknamed Angel of Death by her hospital colleagues long before her true crimes came to light, Kristen used shots of epinephrine, essentially adrenaline, to send her patients into cardiac arrest from which they rarely recovered. It's difficult for most of us to grasp how healthcare workers like doctors and nurses, those whom we entrust with our health and well-being, would exploit that sacred trust. But in Kristen's case, she exploited her easy access to the most vulnerable of victims, veterans who had served in the military, to carry out her own self-aggrandizing fantasies. You take the fact that the defendant is a nurse, registered nurse, expected to care for vulnerable patients, Uh, the fact that, as the indictment alleges, she would murder them in their beds is itself She betrayed that most fundamental tenet of the doctor-patient relationship, do no harm. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, 
we continue to delve into the life of Kristen Gilbert, the notorious angel of death of 1990s Massachusetts. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Kristen Gilbert was a nurse at the Leeds Veteran Affairs Medical Center in Massachusetts from 1989 to 1996. She was convicted of murdering four of her patients during those years and attempting to murder two more, but it's suspected that she may have played a role in as many as 40 deaths. She would inject epinephrine into these veterans' IV bags and wait for it to cause heart attacks all to impress her boyfriend with her amazing nursing skills. In part one, we talked through Kristen's childhood and nursing education, her relationships with husband Glenn Gilbert and boyfriend James Perot, and her murders at the hospital. Today, we'll be discussing how Kristen got caught, including her on-again, off-again confessions to both of her former lovers, as well as her trial and sentencing. John Wall was one of the nurses to discover a number of empty epinephrine ampules in the needle disposal bucket on January 22, 1996. Wall was a friend of Kristen Gilbert's ex-husband, Glenn. He was well aware that Kristen had been cheating on Glenn with hospital security guard James Perot back in 1995. She tried to cover for it by saying that she had to work late, but Wall and other nurses knew her secret. So John Wall already had an unfavorable view of Kristen's character, but being capable of infidelity is considerably different from committing murder. Wall and the other two nurses who suspected Kristen, Kathy Ricks and Renee Walsh, didn't alert the authorities right away, afraid they didn't have enough proof. And unfortunately, they mishandled the evidence, so the empty drug vials were only considered circumstantial evidence, not hard evidence. They discovered that 135 ampules of epinephrine had been delivered to the hospital, but no doctor on staff had ordered that amount. They also found that, of that order, 80 epinephrine ampules were missing from the hospital storage room and totally unaccounted for between August 1995 and February 1996. But none of the many patients who had died so suddenly had been prescribed epinephrine, and all had healthy hearts before Kristen paid them a personal visit. The three nurses reported 29-year-old Kristen almost a month after their discovery of the empty vials, on February 17, 1996. They held her responsible for the high death rate to hospital management, which kicked off a police investigation. The hospital administration could no longer turn a blind eye to the broken vials of epinephrine, not with the flood of medical emergencies and fatalities occurring almost entirely during Kristen's shifts. Her name was on 75% of the emergency codes called and 50% of the deaths in the seven years she worked at Leeds Veterans Affairs Medical Center. It was time to launch a criminal investigation. Only a day later, on February 18, 1996, 
Kristen, unaware that she had just been reported by her colleagues, killed the last of her known victims. Edward Squira was a 69-year-old World War II veteran who was being treated at the VAMC for alcoholism. Kristen slipped into his room and killed him, not with her favorite drug, epinephrine, but with an overdose of ketamine, a hallucinatory medication. Ketamine is sometimes used to treat chronic pain, and it's often used as an anesthetic or a sedative. But not only was ketamine never stocked or bought by the VAMC, no physician had prescribed or authorized the drug usage on Squira. He suffered severe cardiac arrest. Like most of her victims, Squira was a senior white male veteran. We can't say for certain why she targeted these victims exclusively, but it seems plausible that she simply had the easiest access to veterans working at a veterans affairs hospital. In small town Massachusetts, veterans were most likely to be older white men. In late February 1996, Kristen discovered that she was under investigation for murder. Her live-in boyfriend, James Perot, was a security guard on staff at the hospital, so he had eyes and ears on the internal investigation and brought it to Kristen's attention. Kristen did her best to persuade him and others that she was an innocent victim that she was being framed and persecuted by envious co-workers. And Perot seemed to believe her story, at least at first. But Kristen didn't handle the pressure of being under investigation well. Feeling hounded and abandoned, she continued to spiral and began to act out in increasingly deranged ways, stalking, harassing, and intimidating anyone aiding the investigation. She attempted to kill herself as the grand jury investigation into her illicit activities got underway and was put on mandatory medical leave. The very day the VAMC was due to take Kristen off duty, she claimed that one of her patients, Joseph Galanti, had dislocated her arm. Galanti was 72 years old and had no history of being violent or aggressive, while we know Kristen was a practiced liar. And she began to crack under the intense scrutiny. In July of 1996, while she was hospitalized at Mount Holyoke Hospital, Kristen hysterically confessed over the phone to her ex-husband, Glenn. She admitted that she had killed her patients, supposedly claiming her motivation had been to save taxpayers' money. There is no evidence uh, that, that, that we are in possession of that these murders took place to ease the pain and suffering of patients. Glenn was quick thinking and took detailed notes as she gave the damning confession. But as soon as she had confessed, Kristen recanted, insisting she had just been joking. She must have had second thoughts about confessing everything to the man she had cheated on and left. Incredibly enough, though, Glenn was not the only person to hear Kristen's confession. Kristen changed her mind yet again, calling her boyfriend Perot. She was under a great deal of pressure from being the subject of the investigation, but it was a clear confession nonetheless. She confessed that she had killed some of her patients. She then followed this confession up with a claim that she was pregnant with his child, despite the fact that Kristen and Perot hadn't had sex in months. Vanessa's going to take over on providing some information on criminal psychology here and throughout the episode. 
Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. It seems Kristen was again seeking sympathy. She might have felt that if she could convince Perot he was the father of her unborn child, then he would have a duty to protect her as the mother of his baby. If you'll recall, Kristen was diagnosed with narcissistic and antisocial personality disorders and borderline personality disorder during her time at Holyoke Hospital. She refused any kind of medication or therapy that could have helped her manage these conditions more effectively. According to Dr. Sam Vaknin, writer of Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited, all three of these disorders can make it hard to know the best way to respond to difficulty in one's life. A person's attempt to de-escalate a bad situation, for example, can often escalate it even further. This doesn't excuse her crimes, of course, but it can help put some of Kristen's actions during these months into context. We also want to be clear and state that the vast majority of people who struggle with these disorders aren't serial killers. After the phone call from Kristen in early July 1996, Perot's doubts about the relationship began to grow. He wanted to be a cop one day, so he wasn't exactly someone who'd want to be known for dating someone under investigation for mass murder. Just two days after her hysterical call confessing to the murders, Perot broke up with Kristen. This kicked off a further chain of events that led to Perot testifying against the woman who obsessed over him, the woman who was starting to terrify him. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now let's continue the story. James Perot broke up with 28-year-old killer nurse Kristen Gilbert in July of 1996, which caused Kristen to attempt to kill herself. Kristen swallowed a bottle full of migraine pills, causing Perot to call the police. She told the police he had beaten her, but there was no evidence that he had done so. The following morning, she banged on his door in a daze. Perot even called her ex-husband Glenn for backup. This may have been an awkward situation, given that Perot had had an affair with Kristen while she was still married to Glenn. In spite of her increasingly erratic behavior, Kristen was able to sign herself out of the hospital. Then she broke into Perot's apartment. She was apparently determined to convince him not to tell the grand jury what she had confessed over the phone. Perot had Kristen arrested and committed to a second psychiatric ward, this time at Arbor Hospital. He filed a 10-day restraining order against her on July 12, 1996. But despite her past behavior, Kristen was adept at persuading doctors that she didn't need to be hospitalized, that she wasn't a danger to herself and others. According to one of the doctors who examined her mental state that month, she had persuaded them that she, quote, 
does not have any symptoms of depression, self-destructive thoughts, no psychotic disorder, no delusions, and there's no need for the patient to be hospitalized. End quote. She was released yet again on July 15th. Perot denied her demand for him to give her a ride home, as his restraining order against her was still in effect. Her neighbor, Samantha Harris, offered to pick her up from the hospital, having no idea that Kristen was under investigation for murder, as it wasn't yet public knowledge. But Kristen tried to insist that Perot would be the one to pick her up instead, refusing to acknowledge that he had broken off their relationship. Kristen's threats and pleas to Perot proved to be in vain, as on July 16, 1996, he testified against her before the grand jury. He explained how Kristen would harass him with incessant phone calls, including the one in which she confessed to murdering patients by injecting them with epinephrine, inducing cardiac arrest. According to Perot, she said, quote, You know I did it. I did it. You wanted to know I killed those guys. End quote. She had even bragged that epinephrine was near impossible to detect due to its quick breakdown in the body. The grand jury was an exhausting slog for Perot. He was interrogated by prosecutors about the emergency codes at the VAMC that Kristen had called in and about his affair with her. They wanted to know how often she was the sole nurse present when emergency codes were called. In one instance, she had evidently called 22 of 30 code blues that occurred while she was on shift. Perot defensively pointed out that according to VA hospital rules, a hospital police officer like himself had to be present during all medical emergencies. Kristen had surprised him with how calmly she had handled emergency situations, though it now seemed likely she had caused many of them herself. While her former lover was on the stand, Kristen swallowed 60 aspirin and was committed to Cooley-Dixon Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. Investigators would later find the notorious 1980s Guide to Suicide, Final Exit, in the house Kristen had once shared with Glenn. She continued calling Perot from the facility, unable to accept that he now wanted to cut ties with her. One of the doctors, who admitted her for psychiatric evaluation, took note that Kristen gave, quote, contradictory statements to various people about her intentions, particularly around suicide, end quote. She told one of the hospital psychiatrists that she claimed she was, quote, not intending to kill herself, but simply seeking attention, end quote. Of course, we are in no way suggesting that those who self-harm or try to kill themselves do so to garner sympathy and attention in the majority of cases. But in Kristen's case, based at least partially on this admission, it seems likely. But despite his damning testimony and the restraining order he'd placed against her, Perot was having difficulty staying away from Kristen entirely. He visited her almost daily while she was hospitalized, answering her questions about the grand jury. He even picked her up when she was due for release on July 23, 1996, just a week after his testimony before the grand jury. Whatever his reason may have been, Kristen was pleased he was back on her side. When he dropped her off at home, though, they found police with a search warrant overturning her house. 
The police confiscated Kristen's notebook, which contained notes about the friends and colleagues she had interrogated about the murder investigation in an attempt to figure out who would be called against her in a trial. She had two lists, one of friendly witnesses and one of unfriendly witnesses, keeping tabs on everyone involved in the case. On August 15, 1996, Glenn requested that police search his kitchen pantry, which Kristen had kept stocked. Up until this point, he had been reluctant to help the investigation of his former wife. But it seems that something changed his mind. He had taken their sons on vacation at some point during the summer, leaving his father to house it in their absence. When they returned, Glenn's father told him Kristen had stopped by and aggressively tried to gain entry to the house, specifically eager to get inside the pantry. Inside, investigators found a dog-eared copy of The Handbook of Poisoning, which she had swiped from the ICU. They also found a white powder that would be identified as acepromazine. It was a veterinarian tranquilizer Kristen had stolen from a veterinary clinic she had visited on multiple occasions in 1995. The evidence was mounting against her, and Kristen was running out of time. By the end of the summer in 1996, things were looking very grim for Kristen Gilbert. She had been hospitalized three times for trying to kill herself. Her ex-boyfriend, Perot, had testified and gotten a restraining order against her, and her ex-husband, Glenn, had their house searched and evidence confiscated. But despite all of this, Kristen had not been arrested. She was not yet in police custody. Kristen continued to try to obstruct the investigation, only succeeding in making herself look even more guilty. She made anonymous payphone calls to Perot, breathing heavily on the line before hanging up, even though it was obvious to everyone who was behind them. She sabotaged his car once she discovered he was cooperating with detectives. On September 9th, Kristen blocked Perot's car in the driveway so he couldn't meet with the assistant U.S. attorney. He only got her to move by honking his horn and threatening to call the cops. If you're wondering how on earth she had not been arrested yet, you aren't the only one. But according to assistant U.S. attorney William Welch, he did not have enough hard evidence to take her into custody for murder charges. They were waiting for her to incriminate herself. For the moment, Kristen's complete freedom of movement allowed her to go to Glenn's Drusen Drive house, where they had once lived together, and wait for him to come home from work September 15, 1996. She tried to attack him with her car keys. She became so violent and aggressive that she was readmitted to a psychiatric hospital, where one of the doctors on staff recorded that, quote, there is some question about her truthfulness during the admission and some problems with manipulation of staff, end quote. As we mentioned in the previous episode, this was not the first time that Kristen physically attacked her ex-husband. In fact, she chased him with a knife on their honeymoon to the point he locked himself in another room. She made no further attempts on his life until she began a sexual relationship with Perot in 1995, when Glenn started noticing his meals tasted strange. He became very sick and even told his friends that Kristen was trying to poison him. So her trying to attack Glenn at this point in the investigation, while it may seem like a huge misstep, already had precedent in their relationship. 
each of her former colleagues who had been interviewed by the police also found their property vandalized, with Kristen keying their cars and slashing their tires. Kristen even went so far as to buy a Talk Girl Jr. on September 25, 1996. The Talk Girl Jr. was a handheld electronic voice recorder and alterer, marketed as a toy. A person could record their voice and play it at a different speed to change how their voice sounded. On September 26, 1996, Kristen used this toy to change her voice when she called Leeds VAMC with a false bomb threat. The whole building was forced to evacuate while the facilities were searched to find the bomb. Police discovered this purchase by tracking Kristen's Visa credit card and began investigating Kristen for this felony. Oddly enough, Kristen seemed to run the emotional gamut from feeling under attack by the law enforcement watching her, lashing out defensively at everyone, to seeming to blithely play the investigation down. She pretended to not be bothered or simply to not grasp the seriousness of the situation she was in. When a longtime friend, Rachel Weber, called Kristen to ask what was going on, Kristen sounded unruffled by the mayhem she was causing. She said, quote, the investigators found some sort of voice changer thing in the bushes outside my house. They think I called this bomb threat into the hospital, Rachel, end quote. Rachel didn't know the fact that the discovery of the talk girl in the bushes behind Kristen's house hadn't yet been made public knowledge. So the only one who would have known that information outside of the investigators was Kristen. She also joked that this would make a good movie and hoped that Bridget Fonda would play her in a movie of her life. Assistant U.S. Attorney Welch could no longer have Kristen roaming the streets. He obtained a court order to have Kristen admitted to Bay State Medical Center to await her bomb threat trial on October 3, 1996. She was released from Bay State on October 8, only five days later. Kristen was arrested and charged with the malicious bomb threat. She was soon released by the judge to live in the custody of her parents on Long Island, where she remained under house arrest. Her bail conditions included not stepping foot in Massachusetts or calling any possible witnesses. She was also forced to wear an electronic monitoring anklet to make sure that she did not violate these conditions. Investigators played the recording at a higher speed for James Perot. It was clearly a woman's voice, and Perot identified it as Kristen's. Kristen waited for a year for her trial to begin, and she had been ordered to continue a therapy regimen. She was bored, angry, and isolated, a combustive combination. The only friend she could talk to was Rachel Weber, but even she pulled away after being interviewed by the police. On January 1st, 1998, the trial began for Kristen's malicious bomb threat. She had not yet been officially indicted for murder. On January 7th, 1998, Assistant United States Attorney William Welch called witness Ann Millett to the stand, the manager of the Toys R Us where Kristen had purchased the talk girl, who identified that Kristen had bought the toy. Even though the jurors had listened to what was clearly Kristen's voice calling in the bomb threat on the sped-up recording, she baldly denied making a bomb threat on the stand twice. She stated, quote, I wouldn't manufacture a bomb threat, end quote. While the jurors deliberated, 
Kristen stayed home and overdosed on aspirin, having to be hospitalized once again. On January 27, 1998, Kristen was found guilty for calling in the false bomb threat. She was sentenced to 15 months in Danbury Federal Prison. The first trial was over, but the real one was just getting started. Investigators had the bodies of Kristen's suspected victims exhumed, including that of Stanley Jagodowski, her first victim. On July 13, 1998, three years after his death, toxicology analysis determined that his tissue samples contained extremely high levels of epinephrine, more adrenaline than would have been produced in a life-or-death situation. Kristen was indicted on November 18, 1998, by the U.S. Attorney's Office, spearheaded by Welch. They charged her with seven counts of first-degree murder and assault with intent to commit murder. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to female criminals. 31-year-old Kristen Gilbert was charged with murder and assault with intent to commit murder on November 18, 1998. At least four men were dead, all of them veterans who had been treated at the hospital where she had worked as a nurse, and it was believed to be by her hand. These patients were veterans who had served their country and who were in the medical facility, the VA facility, in part to receive care, medical care, uh, as a result of their service in the military, uh, it, it makes it even more shocking, uh, almost incomprehensible. Because her crimes were committed on state-owned property, as all veterans' hospitals are, they could pursue the death penalty, which would have resulted in her receiving a lethal injection. Ironic, considering that Kristen's favored method of murder was in giving lethal doses of epinephrine to her patients. For her murder trial, Kristen was represented by well-known defense attorney David Hoos. His strategy in defending her was to place the blame for the missing epinephrine stock on nurse John Wall and his girlfriend, Bonnie Blesco, both of whom were revealed to have been hard drug users at the time of the murders. In order to shift blame and suspicion from Kristen onto John Wall and Bonnie Blesco, Hoos implied that they had been behind the disappearance of the missing epinephrine vials to support their heroin habit. However, this line of defense was deflated as the prosecution called in two police officers working in narcotics. Both of them testified that they had never heard of crack and heroin addicts using epinephrine in conjunction with hard drugs. Hoos's other tactic was to call to the stand witnesses whose testimonies painted Kristen as a devoted, diligent nurse. These witnesses suggested that the reason Kristen had been present at so many cardiac arrests was simply due to her dedication to her patients. Although Hoos considered asking Kristen herself to testify, ultimately he decided against it. Throughout the trial, she never took the stand in her own defense. On December 13, 1998, the prosecution called Frank Bertrand to the stand to discuss what he had witnessed in February of 1996. He testified how he heard Angelo Vela screaming in agony and ran to his room, finding Kristen by his bedside with a syringe. 
He claimed she had injected him with something under the pretense of flushing his IV, screaming that she did it. Vela had told his family that he felt his heart was going to explode, after which he went into cardiac arrest. But after being revived, he knew what had happened and who was responsible. He said that his chest felt heavy after Kristen had injected his IV line. Vela himself was unable to testify as he died of natural causes shortly before the murder trial. Prosecutor Ariane Vuono made the following powerful closing statement before she rested her case. Quote, These seven victims, ladies and gentlemen, were veterans. They protected our country during war and peace. They were vulnerable due to their physical and mental illnesses. Some were seriously ill, and some had no family. And because of that, ladies and gentlemen, they were the perfect victims. And when Kristen Gilbert decided to kill them or assault in attempt to kill them, she used the perfect poison, end quote. After 12 days of deliberation, the jury found Kristen guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. The only choice left to make was whether she would receive the death penalty for her crimes. During the death penalty phase, the jury heard for the first time of the bomb threat charges brought against her in the previous trial. Kristen's father, Richard, asked for mercy on her behalf, claiming that her mother would be unable to live if her eldest daughter was given the lethal injection. While Kristen was convicted for multiple murders, the jury could not reach a decision to mete out capital punishment by lethal injection, mirroring a wider nationwide split on the subject of the death penalty. Prosecutors described Kristen as a bottomless chasm of darkness in an effort to get the jury to sentence her to state execution as justice for killing so many brave veterans so cold-bloodedly. But Kristen's defense called her ex-husband Glenn to the stand, who pleaded for the life of his ex-wife to be spared for the sake of their two young sons. Glenn's plea may have been what ultimately saved Kristen from receiving capital punishment. The whole courtroom was on edge. When the sentence was read out, sentencing her to life in prison rather than to death, Kristen bowed her head and cried quietly with relief. So instead, Kristen is living out the rest of her days in a federal prison in Texas without possibility of parole. Her attorneys said they would appeal the conviction. However, on discovering that a new Supreme Court ruling would have increased the likelihood of receiving the death penalty, they withdrew their appeals. Kristen Gilbert is now spending the rest of her life behind bars. I have to admit that after all this research, the motivation for her crimes still seems pretty opaque. That Kristen drugged so many of her patients with overdoses of epinephrine to the point that their hearts literally beat themselves to death for so long still feels unfathomable. Well, we'll never know for sure what was going through Kristen's mind when she committed her crimes, especially given that she never confessed to anyone apart from Glenn and Perot. But it seems likely that she killed to glean attention and validation, particularly to impress her then-boyfriend, Perot. Kristen did seem to feed off of the adrenaline high stakes of medical emergencies. And she found that by causing these situations, she could play the hero 
and receive the praise and admiration she so ardently desired. But it seems that the true number of lives she claimed will never be known for sure. Although Kristen was only tried for seven cases of murder, VAMC hospital staff suggests that she could have caused 80 or more deaths. It's indisputable, however, that Kristen caused over 300 medical emergencies during her years there. It almost seems that Kristen had something of an addiction to murder. That's actually entirely possible. According to serial killer profiler John Kelly, a fellow at the American College of Forensic Examiners, Kristen was addicted to killing and would never have stopped if she hadn't been caught. She was undoubtedly something of an adrenaline junkie, addicted to the rush of causing emergencies where she was in her element. She appears to have relished the ever-present danger of discovery and the complete control she exercised over her victim's life and death. Kristen's murder spree makes her one of the 35 known serial killers active in the United States since the 1970s. The tragedy and suffering she inflicted on the families of her victims will never be undone. But luckily for the rest of us, Kristen Gilbert will not be haunting the halls of any hospitals for the rest of her life. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Thanks for listening. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Caroline Klimchuk and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.